Well, good morning, church. I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. As Pastor Nick mentioned, about two weeks ago, he approached me and asked if I would like to preach as a means of training for pastoral ministry. And uh, as terrified as I am to be standing here right now, uh, in fact, David sang that song about me this morning when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Um, but as terrified as I am to be standing here this morning, I accepted at the discretion of the elders, and I do appreciate the opportunity. So I do ask for your prayers and your patience as uh, I embark upon this for the first time. Uh, in fact, can we go to the Lord uh, in prayer now? O merciful Savior, as we gather together to praise you this morning, grant us receptive hearts to hear from your word, to let it reprove us and exhort us that through your spirit we might gain insight into your gospel. Let it be our only boast in life and in death, and let us cherish it for the treasure that it is. Give me clarity of thought and of speech to communicate this gospel to your people. Give me courage to proclaim this message faithfully, and give us all a living and vibrant faith that lays hold of you, the author and perfecter of our salvation. I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, the most crucial aspect of being an evangelical church is the evangel, the gospel, that lays at the center of our confession. And at the heart of this gospel, I would argue, is the doctrine that lays before us today, namely the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's being attacked on many fronts in our day, some new and some old. Some of you might have heard of the so-called new perspective on Paul, where it's justification. We've all really misunderstood Paul's teachings, especially in his epistles. It's really about covenantal, ecclesiastical inclusion. It's really just about joining the church. It's not about the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. We have the Roman Catholic Church, of course, which always taught that, yes, grace is necessary. Of course grace is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Grace is necessary, of course, but on the last day when we stand before God, we will stand before his throne with a mixture of Christ's merits, our merits, and even the merits of saints. In other words, Christ's atonement wasn't sufficient to save us. That's really what we're talking about today is the sufficiency of Christ's atonement to save and the means by which that salvation is applied to us. So, Uh, The ins and outs of those false doctrines, of course, can be confusing, and we're not getting into the mire of it all today. Rather, I hope that as plainly and succinctly as I can, I can lay out for you the scriptural teaching of justification by faith alone. So, we're going to be in Romans chapters 3 and 4 today, if you'll turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then abolish the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. As far as the reading of God's word, you can be seated. So in a book as precise and intentional as the book of Romans, it would seem like an injustice to the text to just jump in here in chapter 3 without establishing some of the context first. So that's exactly what we'll do. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1 for a brief moment. David read it this morning. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Here in these two verses, we have what most commentators agree is the theme of the book of Romans. The theme that, uh, of our text today, even, that God has revealed his righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the righteousness of God is revealed in this message that we preach, and that we receive it by faith. Here in verse 16, Paul speaks of the power by which God saves us, the gospel, and the means by which that salvation is applied, namely, everyone who believes or believing in Christ. Immediately in Paul's presentation of the gospel, we are confronted with the interconnectedness of faith and salvation. These things go hand in hand. Paul goes on to say, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So in what sense is God's righteousness revealed in the gospel? Well, of course, his attribute of justice, his attribute of righteousness is revealed in the gospel. But I think Paul's getting at a little more than that here. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, it is revealed. His attribute of justice is revealed in this gospel message. But in verse 16 and 17 specifically, I think Paul is speaking of that righteousness which is given to us when we place our faith in Christ. Note the contextual link here. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, we might ask, is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to the one believing. Why or how is it the power of God unto salvation? For, Paul states, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So for Paul, the power of God for salvation lies in the righteousness of God being revealed from faith to faith. One commentator, John John Murray, wrote this. The righteousness of God in this instance must be something other than the attribute of justice. Justification is the theme of this epistle, and in these two verses, the apostle is giving us an introductory summary of his leading thesis. The righteousness of God, therefore, is the righteousness of God that is unto our justification. The righteousness, which he later on calls the free gift of righteousness. So here, at the outset of the epistle, Paul says that there is a righteousness offered to everyone who believes, and that the revelation of this righteousness is the power of God unto salvation. So Paul goes on in chapter 1 to describe the state of mankind under sin, all of us, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He goes on then in chapter 2 to proclaim that not only is God's wrath upon us now as sinners, but that there is a day of wrath coming in which God will come, or Christ will come and judge the secrets of men by the gospel of Christ Jesus. And in case there was any doubt left at our state of condemnation, Paul goes on in chapter 3, and he uses universalistic language to describe our state. Chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. 
There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes knowledge of sin. So to summarize again, we are all utterly condemned in our natural state. We are all utterly condemned and the wrath of God rests upon us. But now, with humanity exposed and our sin and idolatry expressed, Paul begins to peel back the curtain and reveal the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, in the previous chapters, we have this dreadful state that we're in as humans. We are fallen in Adam. We are deserving of his wrath, and he will bring his wrath on the last day. But now, Paul says in verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So in this era of redemptive history, again, we no longer see Christ in shadow form. The Old Testament spoke about this righteousness, that's to be sure, but it spoke about it in type and shadow. Paul here says that the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness. The Old Testament is all about this righteousness. But here, in uh, chapter 3, in verse 21, Paul's speaking about the public manifestation of that righteousness at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is the way out. This is the way out of our sin and misery. This is the way out of the wrath of God. Here again, we have Paul making a distinction between the works of the law and the reception of the righteousness of God by faith. Thus far, in chapter 3, He hasn't described how we gain this righteousness. He hasn't discussed that quite yet, but he has made sure at the outset to completely distance himself himself and his teachings from any version of works righteousness that man could dream up. In verse 22, however, Paul cues us in on how one receives this righteousness. He writes, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. These two verses give us an antithesis. On the one hand, you have works righteousness principle by means of law, And on the other hand, you have a faith righteousness principle that comes through believing in Jesus Christ. These two verses in and of themselves seem sufficient to establish our doctrine of justification by faith uh, uh, this morning. But if there were any doubt left, Paul uses, he exhausts, in fact, his abilities as a writer to proclaim the free gift nature of this righteousness in the preceding verses. Continuing in verse 22, Paul writes, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for, he says, there is no distinction, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why is there no distinction between Jew and Greek, between male and female, between uh, slave and free in the gospel? It's because, as the old saying goes, the ground is completely level before the cross. We're all utterly condemned. We stand there condemned. He deserved, or we deserve rather, none of his grace and mercy. And yet, Paul says again in verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been revealed. We've all fallen immensely short of God's standard of righteousness. In fact, we don't come anywhere near uh, any, anywhere near uh, measuring up. Every day we sin in thought, word, and deed. But the good news for us is that salvation is not our work to do. Right? Salvation is a work of God. Our works mean nothing in this process. As we'll see, the work of Christ and Christ alone is sufficient to, put all, uh, to pull us out of this pit of our sin and misery and the wrath of God. But in verse 24, Paul writes, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
So here's the first explicit mention of our doctrine in the text this morning. Paul says that we are justified as a gift. But before we begin to unpack this in some detail, let's define precisely what we mean by justification or to justify. To justify, dikaiao in the Greek, means to declare or pronounce someone to be just, to be righteous. The term, especially in Reformed theology, is said to be a legal or forensic term. So to see what I mean by that, legal or forensic, let's go back to verse 19 again. And in verse 19, Paul draws a picture of all humanity standing before the judgment seat of God. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul uh, evokes powerful imagery of all mankind summoned into the heavenly courtroom there to stand before the law, to stand before God's perfect standard of righteousness, and all of our mouths will be shut. Again, it's against this legal backdrop of God as a judge in a courtroom. It's against this legal backdrop that Paul launches into his teaching on justification. This justification, in this sense, is legal. It's forensic. It's about our pardoning in the divine courtroom. So we run into a problem, naturally, given what we've established in chapters 1 through 3. We've seen about our human natures, have we not? How can God declare or pronounce a sinner to be just, to be innocent? By definition, a sinner is not just, right? It's precisely at this point that, again, the Roman Catholic religion will reach for works righteousness, purgatory, and the like. But Paul, here in our text, goes into a different direction entirely. Rather than putting the emphasis on sinful man and what we may do, Paul describes this justification as a gift, given to us by his grace. In other words, it's entirely free. However, noting that this gift is free doesn't entirely answer our question. Remember, we asked, how can God declare or pronounce a sinner to be just? Well, Paul says it's through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, of course. But more specifically, he says, it's in this glorious word, propitiation. God put forth Christ as a propitiation, that is, a sin offering that appeases the wrath of God on our account. There are a lot of even ostensibly evangelical Christians who don't like to talk about the wrath of God, by the way. But it's a plain biblical teaching, and it's a teaching that we need to grasp, we need to understand in order to get the gospel message. Let's read about the wrath of God for a second that the scripture talks about. In Psalm 7, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. In Psalm 75, but God is a judge. He puts down one and raises up another. For a cup is in the hand of Yahweh and the wine foams. It's full of his mixture and he pours from this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. This language is picked up on by John in Revelation chapter 19, where he prophesies that Christ is coming, and he says he is coming to tread the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. So clearly, God's face is against sin. His face is against sinners, and his wrath rests upon them. The wrath do our sins, however, in this glorious word, propitiation, fell upon Christ. The wrath do our sin fell upon Christ, him being a perfect substitute, he fully and finally turned away the wrath of God for his people. It's glorious, is it not? But as glorious as this is, it gets a little more glorious in a minute, right? Because not only do we have our slate wiped clean, not only are all of our sins gone, not only has he cast them into the sea, but he's given us in Christ a positive righteousness by which we can avail before a holy God. He's given us the righteousness of Christ. 
This is what has been called throughout church history the sweet or divine exchange. Our sins for his righteousness. And in the same way, he took our, uh, our, our sins and gave us his righteousness. Our sins are, in a legal sense, imputed or reckoned to his account. He didn't become a sinner in that moment. No unrighteousness was ever done by the man Christ Jesus. He didn't become a sinner in that sense. But our sins were legally put upon him, and God treated him as a sinner, right? And in the same way, his righteousness, which he stored up during his public ministry and life, that's why Christ lived, by the way. Christ lived for 33 years before he ever went to the cross, right? If it was as simple as Christ dying for us, if that's all it was, he could have done that day one, right? He could have come down and simply died. But Christ stored up a positive righteousness before the Father to give to those who have faith in him. Now, let me ask a question. Do we understand the weight of this? Do we understand the weight of an innocent man, the only innocent man, in fact, who ever lived, coming and taking our sins upon him? I don't think we do. Because if we did, we wouldn't continue in those sins for which Christ went to the cross. We wouldn't continue in our sins daily and delight in those things which give him such anger. So, in a letter written by an early Christian to an idol worshiper named Diognetus, we get this glorious passage teaching on these truths, and I'm going to quote it at length, so you'll have to excuse me for that, but it's just so glorious. But when our wickedness had reached its height, and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us, and when the time had come which God had before appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one love of God, through exceeding regard for men, did not regard us with hatred, nor thrust us away or remember our iniquities against us, but he showed great long suffering. He bore with us. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal for those who are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable operation, O benefits surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of the one should justify many transgressors. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Going on in verse 25, Paul writes, Because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We don't have time to unpack everything in these verses, everything that Paul says, But needless to say, Paul is saying that God put forth Christ, he sent him to the cross as a public demonstration of his righteousness in light of human sin. When Paul says that God passed over the sins previously committed, he does not mean that the Old Testament saints won't stand before his judgment seat, right? We read again in uh, chapter 3, verse 19, that all men, all men will will stand before the judgment seat of God and their mouths will be shut by the law. But in this instance, we're talking about... uh, God being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This just and the justifier kind of language, God maintaining his righteousness, maintaining his justice, has to do with the fact that Christ got punished for our sins. No sin went unpunished in this situation, right? In verse 27, Paul reiterates the free gift nature of this salvation, asking rhetorically, where then is boasting? It is excluded, he says, because Christ has done it all, Because salvation is entirely a work of God, we have nothing to boast about. All boasting is excluded by virtue of the fact that God is the justifier and Christ is the propitiation. All we do is receive this grace with an empty hand. 
That is the way in which boasting is excluded. Uh, Paul says, by a law or principle of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In these words, by faith, apart from the works of the law, we have our sola and sola fide. We have our alone in justification by faith alone. If we are justified by faith apart from works of law, then faith stands alone in that sense, does it not? Paul reiterates this in verse 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Over and over, Paul emphasizes that salvation is to the one believing, that righteousness comes to all those who believe, and that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Nowhere does Paul introduce anything extra. Nowhere do we read about works being read into this situation, but rather we receive this grace by faith and faith alone. This would be a good time to point out, however, that faith in and of itself is not what saves us. We receive the grace and righteousness of Christ by faith, but we're not saved because we were so pious as to believe in Jesus, right? To think along these lines would be to completely misunderstand the purpose and origin of faith. Michael Horton uh, writes this, It's not because of faith's intrinsic value, but because of what it grasps. Namely, Christ is faith, the sole instrument of justification. John Calvin, on the same topic, wrote that, In regard to justification, faith is merely passive bringing nothing of our own to procure the favor of God, but receiving from Christ everything we want. Faith is simply the means by which we lay hold of the one who saves us, namely Christ. There's no human work or virtue added into this mixture of salvation, but we receive it by faith and faith alone so that all boasting is excluded, so that all glory is given to God. For the purposes, again, of this message today, we can't spend too much on certain sections of this passage, verse 31 being a part of that, but in brief. Paul writes, Do we then abolish the law through this faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul has just finished contrasting a works-based law righteousness with the righteousness we receive by faith in Christ, and he's correcting a potential misunderstanding of his teaching. He's telling his readers that just because we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law doesn't mean the law has nothing to do in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that we have no association with the law as Christians. The reason we see people being judged by the law in chapter 3, verse 19, is precisely because it it acts as a perfect standard of righteousness. It acts as the plumb line against which we will be judged on the last day. In fact, 1 John 3, 4 defines sin for us. I think often we define sins in ways that aren't entirely biblical. 1 John 3, 4 defines sin for us as the transgression of the law. So then when we say that men will be judged for their sins, what we're saying is that they will be judged by the plumb line of God's moral law. Paul makes sure to point out that just because the Christian doesn't merit justification by works of law doesn't mean we overthrow the law. Rather, Paul says, we establish it. Because Christ satisfied the curse of the law on our behalf, we ought to treat the law more seriously than anybody else. It was our transgression of the law that sent Christ to the cross so that he could pay our penalty for breaching it. The Christianity we preach, again, is not a works-less Christianity, right? We preach that we are saved, yes, by we are justified by faith and faith alone, grasping the merits of Christ, but that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we obey the law out of love, not for love. We don't obey the law to merit love, but we obey the law because we are loved by God. Now, the doctrine of justification has been spelled out in some detail. Paul gives us a biblical example and commentary on a sinner being justified. The man he chooses to serve as this example is Abraham. 
Now, if we've correctly understood what Paul has said up to this point, we ought to see a couple things happen with Abraham. We ought to see him being confronted with the truth of God, believing in God, and then being justified or declared righteous. So let's see if that's what happens. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Immediately here, before Paul even mentions the moment at which Abraham was justified, he categorically denies that it had anything to do with his own actions, anything to do with works. If it did, he says, then boasting would be an appropriate response. If Abraham had done anything by which he merited God's salvific favor, he would have had something to boast about. By the way, notice how often this theme of exclusion of boasting comes up in Scripture. We have it in Romans 4, we have it in Romans 3, which we saw a moment ago, and we have this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that in, or excuse me, so that no flesh may uh, boast before God, but by his doing are you in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Galatians 6, for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised, so they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul affirms over and over that all human boasting is taken away because it is God and God alone who saves. And the reason, we might add, why Paul is so concerned that there be no room for human boasting in the gospel is that God saves for his own eternal glory. God saves, and again, we read about this in the Old Testament, about the new covenant to come in Ezekiel chapter 36, God commanded Ezekiel to proclaim, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord, when I prove myself holy among you in their sights. God saves God justifies because our salvation is a means of bringing glory to his name. Now, back to Abraham. For if Abraham, Paul writes, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Notice the conformity in Abraham's life with the scriptural example or uh, scriptural presentation that we read in Romans chapter three. Abraham believed God; he had faith, and then it was reckoned at that moment to him as righteousness. God counted it to him as righteousness through faith and faith alone. Abraham received the active obedience of Christ credited to his account. Paul takes special care to explain in even more painstaking detail at this point that if Abraham had contributed anything to earn his salvation, that the justification given, that the grace given, would not be a gift of grace at all. So it would be uh, what he was owed, right, for his work. I work, for example, for a tile company, and every hour that I work, I get a wage that I merited, that I earned, that I deserved. My boss can't say, here's your free gift 
Here's your free gift of your paycheck, right? No, I earned it. I worked for it. Salvation isn't like this. Abraham simply received the gift of righteousness by faith. Paul says that though an ungodly man, note that word, though an ungodly man, he was counted as a godly man. He was counted as righteous in Christ. Again, again, this can't be speaking of some intrinsic righteousness that now Abraham exhibited. He can't be saying that Abraham just now walks in moral purity, right? He's He's perfect now. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about an ungodly man, Abraham, being counted as a godly man on the basis of the righteousness of another. Abraham received that righteousness that Paul says comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's usually at this very point, by the way, that all the false religions, uh, they blunder, to be honest with you. You might find it interesting that when Joseph Smith, uh, the prophet of Mormonism, realized that he was you know, teaching things that didn't exactly align with the word of God, he uh, uh, had a vision from God, and God conveniently inspired him to uh, rewrite certain sections of the scriptures, to retranslate them, right? Really, it's not translation. He didn't have any manuscripts he was working from. He made it up whole cloth, of course. But uh, Joseph Smith tra- changed this glorious truth that God justifies the ungodly and flips it completely on its head, saying that God justifieth not the ungodly. How could it be? How could it, how could it be that God justifies, he declares righteous, godly, ungodly, rather, men? Joseph Smith couldn't have it. He changes later, verse 16 of chapter 4, the glorious message that it's by faith in order that it may be according to grace and to therefore you're justified of faith and works, right? Completely flips it on its head. Violence must be done to the text. In order to pervert its clear and plain meaning, we are justified by faith and faith alone. No work of ours can justify us or even aid in the act of justification because no work of ours is good enough. No work of ours is pure enough, and no work of ours is offered with complete purity of heart. No work of ours is done out of the fullest sense of love toward God. Our works, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, are like filthy rags before the throne of God. The works of Christ, however, they were complete. They were perfect. They were pure, and they were offered with the fullest sense of love and devotion toward God. Only his perfect righteousness can save us. So let's look at the last portion of our text this morning. Starting in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the man, the blessing, excuse me, on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So here we have introduced a blessed man by the Apostle Paul. But note that in the application of these blessings, the text switches from singular to plural. First, he mentions the blessings upon the man, singular, but in the next verse, in the quotation that he reads, he says, blessed are those, plural. The blessed man is representative of all those to whom these blessings apply. So, what are these blessings? In the first, Paul says that this blessed man has all his lawless deeds forgiven, and that his sins have been covered. Having all of his sins punished upon Christ, the blessed man has no sins left to answer for on the last day. All of them have been covered. All have been atoned for by the perfect work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the promise of God of what will, excuse me, this is the promise of what God will do in justification. But next, in the next verse, we get a promise of what he will not do. Paul writes, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. For the blessed man, the one justified by faith in Christ, no more are your sins storing up for you wrath on the last day as you approach a dreadful day of judgment coming. Rather, with John, you can proclaim, when he is manifested, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Your sins, O Christian, have been dealt with in full. If you read the book of Hebrews, 
you'll quickly notice that the preacher doesn't just assume that all's, uh, all those to whom he is speaking are regenerate, that all of them have faith in Christ. Mixed in with his words of exhortation and comfort for believers are some of the most dreadful passages speaking of the fate of those who are part of the congregation, who have been a part of the people of God and yet walk away. So with the preacher of that great book, can I ask each one of you, can you say of yourselves that you are the blessed man of Romans chapter 4? Can you count yourself among those who have their sins covered? Have you embraced Christ? Have you been united to him? And do you believe in him? Do you have faith in him? If not, the preacher in Hebrews says that there awaits still for you a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there's good news as well. The author of Hebrews also says that today is the day of salvation, that if today you put your faith in Christ and receive his merits as your own, that you too can call yourself the blessed man. For those who have taken hold of Christ by faith, please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The God from whom you were once estranged now calls you his friend. The God who once had his wrath upon you now calls you his children. He's made the way of peace. He's given you his spirit. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And now he's given you his word. So live as, as though you are a people that have peace with God. Lay those sins aside which so easily entangle you and find your joy, your satisfaction, and having a peace with a holy God. So that might have been immensely short, but that's all I've got for you today. Uh, I practiced and I tried to time it right, but who knows? Uh, I don't even know how long I've been up here at this point. But if you will, pray with me. Our righteous and holy God, we come before your throne knowing that we deserve nothing from your hands. Everything we have is a gift purchased by the blood of your Son and that for that we are grateful. Given what we've heard from your word, let us be a people of thanksgiving. Living in light of the mercy provided for us, lead us more deeply into communion with you through your word, and let us be a people who lets our knowledge and love for you impact every area of our lives. Let us live as those who have peace with you. Amen.